I'll just tell you straight up that I did not design this in any way to correspond with Father's Day. Just so you know that. Because the main topic of today's sermon is on hell. All right, just so you understand, it, it wasn't designed in any way to represent anything except what God says in His Word, and that's where we are. And so, uh, um, brace yourself if we had... Seat belts on the pews, I'd recommend put them on. Uh, it's quite a fascinating passage. We're going to be especially in verse number 14 and 15. And I'm going to read actually the end of verse 13. Let's call that 13C. All right. We teach kids to say A for the first half and B for the second half. And actually there's three halves here. And that would be C. And that's the last part of verse 13. I'm just going to dive right in there. Okay, you ready? It says, For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes or came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Key word of verse 15. Ungodly. It just keeps showing up. So we've got something to look at here today. So let's talk to the Lord first. Heavenly Father, it is your word that we have open in front of us right now. And we are here for a purpose, and that is to worship you, and part of that is to know you. And as we read your word, we get to know you better. And as we get to know you better, we start to see ourselves and uh, how dependent we are upon you, even to live this Christian life. But we come to know more and more what you call us to be, in contrast to the world that we live in. And I pray today that you make it very pronounced to us as we work through this passage, our relationship with you and how we ought to live. These things are important. And may we not take this lightly. May we study it carefully and watch as you teach us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, for he is the perfect teacher. May he have full, full reign in our hearts and lives today. And may whatever distracts us be set to the side so that we could concentrate on things above. Help us, we pray, as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now here's the good news for you this morning. We are getting near to the end of the characteristics of the false teacher. We have been on that theme for quite a little while, as Jude has been talking about that. And as you could follow in your Bibles right now, you can look where he picked up his pen in verse 3. And he started with the phrase that we were to contend earnestly for the faith. And he hasn't taken his foot off the pedal since. And he went through describing the dangers to that faith with the teaching and the influence of certain men. And he mentions them in verse number 4. Peter, the corresponding passage, Second Peter 2, identifies them as false teachers. That's the term he gives to them. Jude just calls them certain men. But these have crept in, verse 4 says. They've crept in among church folks. 
They had at first just blended in, apparently, but now in their scheming, they have taken some sort of prominent roles, uh, and they're leading people. Again, I bring up Second Peter's words on that same topic, he says, and I hate the phrase, many will follow them. Many will follow them. This is not a minor topic in church activities or conversation. Uh, this, is, this is not minor to the Lord. And I hope it's not minor to us. Like, well, you know, there's better things to talk about or, or we should dedicate more time to something else. Uh, I, I think in our day and age, this needs to be said. Uh, we need to study this passage because false teachers are deceiving today. They are leading astray the bride of Christ, and the Lord takes that very seriously, and so should we. So as we've been walking through this passage together, we're on sermon number 20, all right? And we are on verse 13, 14, and 15. Now, it's a little letter, I know that. But I hope in the process I've alerted us to that danger that can even hit a church that's set in a community surrounded by wheat fields. It is the potential for every single believer in Jesus Christ to be deceived. The potential is there. And the potential is there. My job is to guard you of these things, giving to you the Word of God. Your job is to guard as well, folks. That's not just my job. Some of you know we've got a dog in the backyard with a big mouth. People walk up and down the street, she barks. People come out in their backyard, she barks. James comes out in his backyard all the way next block over. She barks at him. Um, because she barks at things that she says, that shouldn't be. And you know what? Sometimes that bothers me. But sometimes I really appreciate it. Because when I hear the dog bark, I go to the window. And I say, who's out there? What's out there? Usually it's Larry. And she doesn't like Larry. That's just another story. But uh, um, it's just the way it is. But I go looking. I go looking when the dog barks. Jude is barking. All right? So let's look to see what it is that Jude wants us to see. Uh, I'll get down to the simple things here. There is a remedy for false teaching, and that is to grow in your knowledge of Christ. He's not... Gathering up a group to go charge after false teachers. He says, the false teachers are going to be there. God's already said that was true. And that was prophesied. It was going to happen. But he didn't call us to attack the false teachers. He told us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm here. To help you grow. That's why we're here. So that we all grow together so that we stay close to Him. Because the danger increases the further we stray from our Lord. We don't want that, do we? So these are some of the things that are on your pastor's heart. And uh, we certainly can't blame Jude if we fall for a false teacher. He has done his job. He has recorded these things for us. The influence of the false teacher is tough. And we've been sufficiently warned about who they are, and about what they do. I like to think of Jude from verse 5 to verse number 16 as somewhat of an encyclopedia article on a false teacher. 
He goes through the details. He's worked through all these things, the characteristics and their actions and their words and all those kind of things. And there is so much to it. And folks, we're near the end of that part. You've walked with me through this. There's only a couple more pieces to add here in verse 14 and 15 and then next in 16. And uh, then we go on to what we are to do. Starting in verse 17, we move into that passage that gets very personal. It's very applicable. It's what we should be doing to prepare ourselves to contend for the faith like Jude has been asking us to do. And I know I touched on it a little bit when we started the study, but now we're coming back to it. Real soon we're going to be able to deal with that. But as we have today, verse 13c and 14 and 15 in front of us, you can see the end of the false teacher, and it comes down to the word judgment. Judgment. The doctrine of judgment is not comfortable. It wasn't meant to be. It doesn't give us a happy, warm feeling. It's avoided in most most churches, to be honest with you. It's just avoided. It's denied by doctrinal statements of a good portion of religions today. Even polls reveal that a significant portion, and I'm saying over 30% of young adults, young adults, from young age adults all the way up to their late 50s, a good portion of those, 30%, one out of every three, does not believe that hell even exists. Did you know that? Many of them are in churches. We're taught in quite a few places that some people say God cannot punish people to hell, nor can he keep them there forever because God is love. And it's too, he's too merciful to do such a thing. That's what they say. That's the way they, they rationalize their beliefs. Uh, there are some groups, believe it or not, that even go so far to believe that God plans to redeem everyone in the end, regardless of how they lived or what they believed, and that even Satan himself will be redeemed. Maybe that surprises some of you, but there are some who actually believe that. It has been said before, and I think the fact remains pretty obvious, Jesus spoke more about hell and judgment than he ever did about heaven. And he ought to know. He knows the truth. After all, what did he create? Go ahead, say the word everything, because that's true. You'll find it in Colossians, and you'll find it in John, both places, John chapter 1, Colossians 1. It says he's the creator of all things, and if that is so, guess what else he created? Hell and the lake of fire, because all things were created to him, and nothing has ever come into existence except through him. Okay? That might be hard to swallow. Wait till you hear the rest of the sermon. God has done these things. But I'll say something theological to hit on one point I just made already before we go into the rest. They say that God is love and he can't possibly punish people to hell or keep them there forever. 
They say God cannot be loving. But listen to this. God cannot be completely loving if He gave the ungodly a pass for their sin and erased all judgment. Do you know why? He who loves His Son so to the fullest measure also laid on Him the entire wrath of the sins of the whole world. Right? We believe that. It's about the cross. And to erase the penalty for sin is to erase the purpose of that cross. And it's to erase the pain of the Savior's death. And it's to erase the value of the plea, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Why should we even evangelize if there is no punishment? To take away judgment is to take away the need to evangelize. To take away punishment is to say that sanctification is unnecessary. To say that hell is, doesn't exist is to cheapen heaven. To take away justice is to make a mockery of righteousness. That's why we preach it. We preach what God has put in His Word. And He says there's a place called hell. Yes, there is. It's not a bad word. It's a bad place. People use it the wrong way, don't they? We preach on hell because God said it's true. We preach on the lake of fire because they are. It's taught in the Bible, and we who love the Lord Jesus Christ ought to rejoice in the fact that He will be vindicated in the end. When the enemies of His bride, His body, the church, are put into eternal punishment. It's good to know that holiness is going to win, folks. It's good to know it. That braces us up and helps us to understand some things, but Jude goes through quite an explanation on judgment. Follow with me. You'll find this is true. He has not been quiet. All the way to verse number 4. First time mentioned. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Woo! Right away he brings it up. Identifying certain persons, we know those to be the false teachers, ungodly people, and they were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Long time before. They were marked out for this condemnation. Marked out, the word is prographo. Grapho, graphite, we use it for graphs, we use it for writing. That's the Greek word to write, grapho. Pro means before. He wrote it out beforehand, before they ever came, before they ever existed. That's the beauty of our Lord's omniscience. He knew it was coming, and he wrote it down, just to show you that he knew. He marked out, that's the word. He said it beforehand. Now, just a side note here for a minute, and you say, well, what does this mean about these people? Did God... Sometime way back then, mark them out for this condemnation here. Did he say, oh, there's one, mark him down. Oh, there's one, mark him down. And did he go through this whole list in his mind that who's going to be the one being punished here? There's a doctrine called double predestination. You ever hear it before? Some people say, I don't even know what predestination is. Now you're doubling it? What's that? Predestination is that God knew beforehand and He destined beforehand something to happen. 
right? Double predestination is a doctrine that comes out this way. And they think it's logical. If God has predestined us to eternal life, and by the way, he has, Ephesians 1 would tell you so. If God has done that, if God looked out over the ages of time and he says, Well, there's one, that's mine. There's one, that's mine. That one's mine, and that one's mine, and that one's mine. And God can do that, by the way. He can tell the future from the, the beginning, from the end, and all that. That's not a problem for me. He's bigger than me. I say, okay, I could go with that. Scripture says that. They say, well, then reasonably, they say, if God goes about saving people to eternal life, doesn't he predestine the rest to be unsaved? That's called double predestination, by the way. They conclude that it's just not fair if God has predestined them to eternal punishment. It's not fair. But you know, Scripture never teaches that. That's the fun part about all this. That's not a true doctrine. Double predestination is not a true doctrine. God destines the soul that sins shall die. Let me give you a picture of this. That's different than predestines. He destines that a soul that sins will die. What did he tell Adam before he ate of the fruit? The day you eat of it, you shall die. Had Adam already eaten? No. So he told him beforehand, right? He says, this is the destiny of those who eat of this fruit. They die. The law was set, just like you might say the law of gravity or any other of God's ordinances, to sin means to die. And hasn't he been consistent about that all the way through Scripture? Ezekiel breaks it up. The soul that sins shall die. It's like a universal law. And unfortunately, we all fall into it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me give you a picture. God didn't have to predestine any of us to punishment. We became condemned when we sinned. Unfortunately, I hate to tell you this, but you were born that way. That kind of makes it even harder, doesn't it? It's like this giant hole in the ground, and the entire population is falling into it because of sin. Now, go ahead and blame Adam if you want, but the fact remains, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Now, in mercy... God chooses some of us who will believe in him and take his remedy, the sacrificial death of Christ. He will save some, and yet all of us deserve death. He will save some. He will save some. This is the department of predestination, and it's a wonder, and it's a blessing to all of us, as uh, my teacher at Tyndale Theological Seminary used to say to us, the question is not, why did God save some and not others? But the question is, why did God save anybody at all? How many of us were worthy of it? None of us. It's just an amazing thing to see that God would care enough. Here's the point. God said long beforehand, if a false teacher ever steps on this planet, he will be condemned. You see? You want to put on the garb, garb of a false teacher now? God had predestined 
if you will. He said long beforehand that those who do this will be condemned. Certain persons have crept in. And Jude says right away, Oh, these are the people that God had said long time ago, if they ever show up, understand, they've been marked for condemnation. Because that's where false teachers always go. Into condemnation. If they live like that, they're going to be condemned. Now Jude said that in verse 4. In verse number 5, he goes on to speak about people coming out of Egypt. And he says at the end of verse number 5, after they came out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. He destroyed those who would not believe. Does God punish? Oh, yes. We don't have to go into great details there. Verse number 6, talking about angels who did not keep their abode, their proper domain. He has kept for eternal bonds under darkness for judgment in the great day. Does that sound like he's going to punish? Yes, and that's brought up there too. Yes, folks, even Satan himself will be cast into the lake of fire on that great day of judgment. It says so in Revelation 20, verse 10. You could cross-reference it. We were in Revelation not that long ago. But it says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. How long is that? Forever. It doesn't end. It's important, though. Let's side note one more time. The difference between hell and the lake of fire. So so you understand, there are two different places we're talking about. Hell is one place, it's a place of torment. Everything you read about it is terrible. There's nothing in it that's good. Nothing, 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 nothing. Get it? Nothing. There are some who have a mistaken mistaken identity, whatever, they think that this, idea that if they go to hell, they'll be there with all their friends and they'll have a great time. Uh, that's not what Scripture says at all. That's frightful to even think that way. An unbeliever goes to hell when they die. Whether it's a he or a she, it doesn't matter. They go to hell when they die. An unbeliever goes there. It does not have an exit door. It doesn't have a way out. They're not there to sample it for 30 minutes, come back and write a book about it. That doesn't happen. Hell is, though, temporary in one way. It is not eternal. Its elements of torment are all there, but it is a temporary place. That is where they hold the unbeliever until the great judgment day. We call it the great white throne judgment. It's identified in also in the book of Revelation, there around verse chapter 20. And the great white throne judgment will take place and all unbelievers will be brought before the Lord for the judgment on that great day. That's what Jude just mentioned a few minutes ago. The judgment on that great day. And that's where they will be cast into the lake of fire. That's the difference. The lake of fire is permanent. Hell is temporary. The lake of fire is permanent. Those who have been in hell are ushered into the lake of fire. And that judgment they just went through, that wasn't to give them a second chance, folks. That was to show them it was justifiable that they are there. Because they did not believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, don't you dare be there. I'm telling you, you have the opportunity today to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I tell you that, I talk about Him, because I want you to believe in Him. Because this is your destiny, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ. I don't want to see you there, on that day, going to that place. Okay. The lake of fire is eternal. Those who go there are ushered out of the presence of the Lord forever. And those who who believe contrary to this, they say that's not true. The scripture does say they will be conscious forever and ever and ever. Not annihilated. Not burnt up and gone. But that's where they stay. It's frightful, is it not? You say, oh, this is terrible. How can it ever happen this way? God designed it. God designed it. What does Jude say in verse 7? Talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and cities around them. We know the characteristics of that. They indulged in gross immorality. They went after strange flesh. And they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. God gave us samples of this in the past, in history, to say it's true. Who else does Jude talk about? What else does he say? Verse number 10. Verse 10. He talks about these men who revile the things they do not understand. They're like the things which they should know by instinct, like unreasonably unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. And that word does not mean annihilated. It means to be ruined or to perish. It does not mean to no longer exist. Verse number 11. Woe to them, he says. They have gone the way of Cain and pay for their, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam and perish in the rebellion of Korah. Death is a punishment for sin, is it not? That happens too. Now you come to verse 13 and you see that Jude has not been quiet about judgment so far. Verse 13. Wild waves of the sea. Casting up their shame like foams, these were descriptions of the false teacher. Wandering stars, and then he says, For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. You see that word again? It says forever. It has been reserved forever. It stays reserved. We call that the perfect tense, by the way. The Greek word reserved here is perfect, which I sometimes jokingly called a permanent tense. But that's the idea. In other words, it stays reserved. God's plan will never change. He will never change His mind. You could write as many books as you want out there on God being too merciful or too loving or whatever you want to call that, and God will not change His mind. It's been reserved and it stays reserved. God has already thought this through and He will not change His mind. That's heavy stuff. Jesus talks about hell. He even talked about it as a place being prepared. Did you know that? You ever go through Matthew 25 and read the story of the sheep and the goats? 
He brings before him the sheep and the goats and he separates the sheep on one side and the goats on the other and he goes through a description about how these ones can enter the kingdom, the sheep can because they have gone when he was naked, gave him something to wear, when he was hungry, gave him something to eat, and there's a passage like that. And then he turns to the other side, the goats, and he says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. That's Matthew twenty-five forty-one. You've said that. You've seen that before. No doubt. Anytime you have company coming to your house, and they're going to stay a little while, don't you prepare something for them? you got a special room. You call the guest room. Don't you prepare something, a place for them to stay while they arrive? You make all the preparations so that when they come, they can stay there. The punishment was prepared already. It's prepared for the devil, among others. <laughs> Isn't that what it said? God knew beforehand. He knew far beyond what our minds can even grasp here. Because he's an omniscient God. But he must know everything. And he created a place, and he's prepared it, and he's reserved it for judgment. You say, okay, Pastor, maybe that just developed over time. Maybe maybe our understanding, it's just, you know, that's theology in the making. Well, let's go to a man named Enoch. Jude brought him up, and I think it's appropriate that he did. Enoch, you see him in verse 14 and 15. This is about these men. Enoch said something. You say, okay. What's that mean? Well, let's talk about Enoch first and then talk about the wonder of what he just says. Enoch, his, his genealogy is recorded in the book of Genesis. That's going back a long ways. Genesis chapter 5, way back there, verse 18, is where you start. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. And Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. I stop there for a minute and say, Happy Father's Day. Does that fit in there? I'm trying to find a place for it. So there it is. He had children. All right. Verse 20. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Did you know that? Okay. Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What is that? He's walking along, his footsteps stopped here, and the next step was in heaven. God took him home. Not to punish him, but to set an example for us to talk about today, probably, among other times, Enoch walked with God. And God says, come home. And he went home. Enoch's job was done. Now, what do you know about this man? Other than that, that's, that makes great talk. It's in Hebrews and other places, too. Enoch was born roughly in the year 3382 B.C. Is that a long time ago? That's almost 5,000 years ago. More than 5,000 years ago. He lived 365 years, which was a short life compared to everybody around him. Everybody else was living 900 years. He lived 365 years. 
from his birth, about a thousand years after his birth, was the flood. Are you getting way back now? Enoch, Enoch was taken to be with the Lord almost 700 years before the flood. So there's that 365 years in there. Here's something else to surprise you, maybe. Adam, Adam was 622 years old when Enoch was born. Adam would live for another 300 years. When Enoch went to a family reunion, Adam was still sitting there. Is that going back a long ways? Getting a feel for this? Way back. Matter of fact, Adam died only 57 years before Enoch was taken. That's a long life. A lot going on in that picture. What does that have to do with anything here? Mankind hadn't been very long on this earth. And they already had messed it up bad. When you read verse number 15, you say, what is going on in that world? It was still very young when these things were recorded and said. Ungodly men, ungodly deeds, ungodly ways, harsh things, ungodly sinners speaking against God. That was Enoch's generation too. Any surprise that there was a flood? Man hadn't been long on this earth, and the ungodly nature of man was dominant. And God had already, even from the days of Enoch, even before the flood, condemned and declared the punishment of ungodly teachers. Isn't that remarkable? It would be 3,000 years before the church would even be on the planet. And God had already declared the judgment that Jude's talking about that false teachers are going to be punished. Because God saw the impact of a false teacher. God was not surprised when the false teachers arrived. God was not caught off guard. And yet, here's the thing, folks. The judgment has not yet taken place. Even though it's been recorded for all these years, verse 14 says, it's these men that Jude's talking about, that Enoch talked about in the seventh generation from Adam. And he prophesied about them. Behold, the Lord came with many thousand of his holy ones. That's the second coming of Christ, by the way. Just so you know. To execute judgment upon all. To convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way. And all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You could just simply walk through that and see it's not just their actions, is it? It's their words. It's their ways. It's what they've done to God's people. And this, believe it or not, ungodly statements they spoke against God himself. Zechariah made a comment back in his prophecy in the Old Testament. Chapter 2, Zechariah 2, verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, he writes, After glory he sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You ever heard that phrase before? Those who attack God's nation, God's people, and that is Israel, it's as if you poke God in the eye. Do you know what? God has not changed his mind either. 
We live in a funny day and age. I don't understand half of it. But I do understand this, that there are many nations out there poking God in the eye. I don't think that's a good idea. It's a terrible idea. I see how the world is lining up in its way against Israel. Woe to them for doing so. God will keep his promise to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And I have never seen him change his mind on that one. And he never will. That's one thing. But realize this. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And as I said before, he takes false teaching so seriously that I would say that that verse would also fit the concept that he who touches the church touches the apple of the eye of Christ. That's his love. He gave himself for that church. Why shouldn't he condemn those who teach her wrong? Why shouldn't he condemn those who teach her wrong? Who lead her astray? Ultimately, folks, I do know this, that the Lord will get his glory. He will get his glory. And he gets his glory from the redeemed of the Lord. And he also gets his glory from the punishment of the wicked. Don't ask me how to explain that exactly, except I know it's true. And all of his characteristics will be known. Every one of them. His justice and his mercy. Put it all together. We're going to be praising his name. We're going to be praising his name. Do you think you're going to stand up in heaven and say, but Lord, that doesn't sound very fair. I don't think so. We're going to stop and say, wow, that's even bigger than I ever thought. Because it is. You're reading these words with me today. See anything happy in all these things? Verse 14 and 15, you go, yeah, there's nothing good. Pastor, it's supposed to be a happy day today. Well, he's walking through the description of a false teacher. And he's telling you that God has a plan Underscore this in your mind. For so many times we live as if God doesn't know what's happening on this earth. That God's not in charge somehow. That God never thought that through. Surprise! False teachers. God, do you know? It doesn't seem for some people that God's in charge at all. But God's looking down and He sees that false teacher. He sees He's destroying His church. He sees He's influencing His bride. He sees that... Everything he does is destroying the flock. And God takes that seriously. And so should we. So should we. We should stand here as sheep and say, thank you for being a protective shepherd. We should stand there as sheep and say, Lord, I'm so glad that I belong to you. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. hundred 140 years ago. It's a sad affliction when our solemn assemblies, the brilliance of the gospel light is dimmed by error. The clearness of the testimony is spoiled when doubtful voices are scattered among the people and those who ought to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth are preaching doctrines which are the imaginations of men and the inventions of the age. This has been going on for a long time, folks. It's been going on since the days of Jude. It's been warned about since the days of Enoch. 
to say that we live in an unprecedented time, I think is true. But the very fact that there's false teachers out there now, God has warned us. He has told us and prepared us for this day. That means he must know what's happening, huh? He must. Now, I don't stand here and just point the finger just without careful self-reflection. I'm very, very conscious of these things. You know, to be self-reflective is so uncomfortable. But here's another quote. I'm going to read it to you. Arthur W. Pink. If you've ever read anything of his, you come away just almost ready to cry every time you read a paragraph. You say, wow, did that hit the spot. But Arthur W. Pink wrote this. The closer the Christian draws to Christ, the more he will discover the corruption of his old nature and the more earnestly he will long to be delivered from it. It is not until the sunlight floods a room that the grime and the dust are fully revealed. So it is only when we really come into the presence of him who is light that we are made aware of the filth and wickedness that indwells us and which defiles every part of our being. And such a discovery will make us cry every time, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And there is an answer. It's in Corinthians. It's in chapter 15, it's verse 57. And it says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When we study these things, again, I bring it back to this. We've got a Savior who knows these things. He's in charge He's got a plan, and it will be fulfilled perfectly, absolutely perfectly. And as just clay, I'm not going to talk back to my maker. I don't know about you. But when I study these things and I realize how big they are, I just stop and say, Lord, you saved me? You chose me? How astounding is that? Knowing who I am and what I've done and all this thing about the whole defilement of my own self. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? It's Jesus Christ. And that's who we're here for. That's who we proclaim. He is the, he is the one that the bride belongs to. And so I say again as your pastor, keep close to Him. You've got to grow in Him. You've got to. In your knowledge and the grace of our Savior, stay close to the Shepherd. We need to be strong in the evil days. But folks, this world's not getting any better. It's not getting any better. And false teachers are leading many people astray. And so I appeal to you, trust your Savior more. More. More and more. Remember, He is able. That's what it comes down to. Who is able to make you stand Instead of stumble. He is. It says so in Jude. Isn't that great? Jude's not going to leave us on a, on a downer here. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Blameless with great joy. To our only God. Our Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty, and dominion, and authority, before all time, and now, and forever. And he says, Amen. I rejoice in those things. He is trustworthy, folks. 
He is trustworthy. Without any hesitation and with full conviction, believe He is trustworthy. And that's the encouragement to the body of Christ. Okay, we're going to cover one more verse that's really kind of ugly. And then we're going to get really serious about what we're to do. All right? Read the book of Jude this week, would you? Give you homework. No quiz next week. But homework. Read the book of Jude. Especially stop in verse 17 through 23 and write down all the things he tells you to do. All the things he tells you to do. And we're going to get talking about that real soon. Until then, let's carry on close to our shepherds, please. Heavenly Father, wow, you've got a heavy, heavy word here. It is more than what we can bear, we know. Lord, it's hard to fathom these things because we've never seen it before. The day will come. And we know it will come because you have said so. And in that we rest. Not in the full explanation of all the natures of it, but we rest in the fact that you know. And we can trust you. And I thank you, Lord, for that. And I thank you that you know us. You love us so much that you gave us this message. You did not conceal it from us. You knew we needed to see it. And these things drive us closer to you. And they should. And for that, we thank you, Lord, for reminding us to stay close to our shepherd. Help us as we walk as a church, one body here together, as individuals of those who belong to Jesus Christ. Help us to walk close to you, we pray. May this week be a turning place in our lives. If there's any among us who have been prone to wander, they have caught on to some false teaching or false living in one way or another. Convict their hearts of that and draw them close to yourself, I pray. And help us as other brothers and sisters in Christ to be there and help too. We've got a lot for us to learn here, Lord, in this passage. And yet today we learn something very important. We have a great God. And I thank you, Lord, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.